so I can look at real people. So for people who are online, um, my apologies, because it's getting harder now um, when there's live and online. So my focus is going to be probably more on live. Um, and then I'll try and pay attention to uh, anything that's on here. And my apologies in advance if I sound or fun. I'm, I have like, my allergies are acting up. So I'm like uh, congested. I was originally gonna try and do seven and eight today. It's not gonna happen. Um, so I think it's gonna be just chapter seven. Seven through 10 are, uh, I think like the, the pivotal like movement. In, in the gospel, right? We saw the, the ending of John 6, where the fight breaks out, where everybody is upset about this bread of life discourse um, and have to eat me. Um, and where he even has that stand with, with his disciples saying, if you don't like it, um, you can also go. Um, and what we're gonna even see right now actually is the reaction of some of his family um, in the flesh, even towards him, which is which is not positive. And the fight that we talked about in chapter five, this forensic like trial, is still dogging him here to the point that there is some um, theory that six got injected in the middle and that seven should have continued right off like from from where five is. I don't I don't have that opinion personally. Um, but they're so linked that some people think that. So we will read seven and the beginning of chapter eight. So I'm linking the beginning of chapter eight, the story of the woman caught in sin. Um, I don't know how much time I'm going to spend on that story, even though we all love that story, only because that story um, probably doesn't belong there. Uh, that story is 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 a true story of our Lord. I'm not I'm not questioning its uh, authenticity. Um, it's an ancient story, it's a well-known story, but in some early manuscripts of the Bible, you'll find it in the Gospel of Luke, um, and you'll find it in various places because they know it's a real story that they wanted to preserve, right? Um, it's almost like if somebody writes a good book and somebody's like, oh, he forgot this story, right? Like, let's say someone, like, give memoirs of Pope Shenouda, right? And there's this great book, but then somebody had this addendum of being like, you missed this story. And so they're trying to figure out, should I put it? this one it seems like that's what's happened with uh that story because it actually completes um the narrative and but it, it is it's got a good link thematically so we'll come we'll come to it so before reading i'm gonna i'm gonna attempt and see what it's like to read it piece by piece um i did want to spend some time on talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, because this is what it is. And Feast of Tabernacles to the Jews is, or was one of the, the most epic feasts for them, right? So I want to compare it to how Nairuz was like 30 years ago. I don't think people take Nairuz that seriously today, but a big deal. Um, and it still is in the Middle East because that is New Year's for a lot of cultures it's not just new year's for for the coptic church and or like cinco de mayo for like the mexicans 
Um, like it's it's got it's got a huge thing to it. I would say that today, culturally, it's probably more akin to Christmas as I remember in Canada as a kid. And with by that, I don't even just mean religiously. I mean culturally, right? The Christmas carols, the Christmas trees, the decorations, all of the stuff that comes with Christmas is is what they have with the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths. Tabernacle means tent, right? Um, and it was one of the three major feasts that the Jews had to go to the temple for, right? They had other feasts that they didn't have to go for. Um, and so it began, it began, it began a couple of weeks after uh, New Year's, five days after Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. So they're in like church season. And um, it was originally one week. And as we'll see, this thing gets longer. Um, and the idea behind it is I would emphasize that the, the desert experience that the Jews had in their history. Um, when they were living in tents. Now, I don't think that that's why the feast happened. I think it became associated with it because it's actually harvest time. So they'd be collecting the harvest and they made a feast of it and they'd bring their tents so you wouldn't have to keep on going back and forth their house to, to the, the fields. And then it became more associated with that. But we'll, we'll get into that because all this will matter, I think, for the conversations we're going to enter. And so during this period of plenty, Right, like just like if you think of the Nairu songs, we think we're like Nairu, like we talk about the bounty and the harvest, and you crown the year with your goodness, right? So there's a sense of we bring in the bounty and God gives us the blessing. Um, and so what they would do is that they would publicly recite um, the covenant during this period because they were linking the blessing and prosperity with their keeping of the covenant, and. That's probably why this feast became so big to them, mostly after the exile, because to them, they were in trouble. They were in exile for not behaving, right? So this became an even bigger thing, and it became more associated, as we can see, with the Jewish identity. So the harvest got people excited, and um, history seems to show that during the monarchy, before the exile, it looks like they had, they had stopped even practicing this feast for a while. Like they had completely been obliterated from their memory. It shows you how kind of watered down um, things had gotten before the um, the exile. Like like it makes you understand why the through the prophets we hear that God's really not impressed. Um, where where you forget major things like that and Passover. Um, so it began as a harvest festival where people who didn't live in the countryside would go live in it. And they would temporarily leave their homes to there for the feast. Um, and the reason why I'm like really spending time on that point is because this feast was not originally associated with the temple. It was actually not like a church thing, um, which I have some thoughts on for how we practice things, but that's for the meditation part later. Um, and it was seen as a really big rallying point because one of the, this feast would be one of the places where Jews who didn't come back to, to the kingdom, right, that were in the Jewish diaspora at the time, they would come back for this. So it gives it even more of the family feeling, right? That's when it's like Christmas, right? Of like everyone's getting together or like Thanksgiving on the American side. The Americans really like celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, so by the first century AD, so by the time that the Lord is incarnate it started to be celebrated at the temple and its emphasis i think because of the exile had started to become on renewing the covenant 
right? So it started to become a big deal of saying, let's never get in trouble again. Let's never get in trouble again. Make your promises, make your promises, renew the covenant. Um, and so the eighth day of the festivities would be seen as like the day, the eighth day was seen as the day of joy, the day where we um, celebrate ourselves as God's chosen people. Which I, I, I can see some links to resurrection um, for, for us. So the main aspects of the feast, and I'm going to emphasize these because the Lord is going to address all three of these in the next four chapters, are water, light, and joy. Okay, so I'm going to go through the rituals um, because to understand this discussion, you have to understand the ritual. Um, it would almost be like, I don't know, like trying to explain Easter to someone who hasn't seen it and be like, yeah, yeah, people are making funny noises, right? When they're all elating, like, right? Or like trying to describe the, the resurrection drama, like when there's specific events that are different than normal or Holy Week, if you don't understand it, then some commentaries will just be, will seem random. So the seven day feast began and ended with a special Sabbath. Okay, so the work of the harvest would be done. The people are now going to rest um, and they would rejoice, eat and drink. And they would also often tithe their crops at this time. Okay, so they'd be bringing in the tithes of food to the temple and saying, this is our offering to God. Now, everybody that was celebrating was supposed to construct these temporary shelters, the tabernacles or booths. Um, and they would eat and sleep in it during the feast. And like I said, they would use that as a reminder of God's protection to them when they were in the wilderness and, and doing that. So then the priests would offer special sacrifices um, and they would offer descending number of bulls every day. So they start with 13 bulls the first day, the next day 12, 11, et cetera, um, killing 71 in total. Um, and every seventh year, they'd read the entire book of the law, right? So every seventh year they would read um, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as well as Deuteronomy, with all of its curses, right? Where, and if you don't, like, all of these things will happen to you. Now, after the exile, they started lighting giant menorahs in the temple courtyard, okay? Um, there'd be all-night dancing to flutes by torchlight, so I think this was a big deal. Like this wasn't like they come in and Lezi and 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 peace out. Like they're they're partying. Like they associate this as like this is family time. This is the most fun time of year, right? Uh, there'd be processions at dawn that would end with offerings of water and wine at the bronze altar. They pray rain. They pray for resurrection for those who believed in it at the time. Um, and the priests would be marching around the altar, waving uh, palm branches while people carried. It was like it was it was dramatic, right? And it was so dramatic to the people, just to get a sense of how much the people liked this feast, that when um, Yusufus, one of, one of the Jewish historians, talks about how there was one high priest who in the year 100 BC um, refused to do the feast properly, they had to bring in troops to quell 6,000 rioters who were like, no, you're, you're celebrating the feast. So like the people like this feast. So the central element was water. Okay, so in the morning, the priests would have a procession where they would go to the pool of Siloam, which we see in the Gospels, right, where there's a miracle that happens, um, to get water. And they would have, this had its own rituals and psalms, they would sing the, the hallowed psalms, all the praise psalms, um, and they'd bring it to the altar. And they would say, save us, we beseech you, O Lord, while circling the altar. 
Um, and it's preserved in a whole bunch of rabbinic texts that um, you don't need. It could be. I need to look that one up specifically because I'm not sure. Um, and it's interesting because some of the rabbinic texts that come later talk about how important this feast was to them even when they didn't have a temple, right? Because it goes over what they did when they no longer had the temple to pray at. Um, do, 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 do. Um, so during the feasts, um, like you said, they, they, they go to the fountains, they, to the waters of the asylum, they fill the golden water, and they would say things like, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I'm meditating on this because we also today do these rituals, right? Like when the priest is washing his hands, there's psalms that he's supposed to say. Um, and so it's interesting to see that there might be a, a Jewish uh, origin in some of these things. Um, uh, okay, so water was used in the morning. Okay, so that was the morning ritual was all associated with water because water is harvest, water means rain, water means all like blessing, like this association with, with, with water. That's why water is a big deal. Nighttime, it was all about lights, right? This festival of lights. So four candle holders were made with wicks. Old garments of priests were used as torches um, to be lit around the temple. So the night would now be a place that's completely bright. And like we said, there's dancing, there's celebration. So there's there's these vivid like thoughts. It's almost like having a massive bonfire party like going on where there's tons of bonfires. And Or even if you think about Saturday of Light, the picture you see of Jerusalem, where there's just light everywhere right this is this is what's going on for them so it's exciting and you can imagine emotionally when you're up doing sahara vigil every night right with all this like it's it's got to be like a happy time um so the priests and the uh, uh proceed towards the east gate of the temple and at the moment of sunrise they would turn their backs to the sun facing the west right and then they would say um to the people assembled our fathers, when they were in this place, turned with their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun. As for us, our eyes are not turned to the sun, but to the temple, right? So they're announcing that they have forefathers who are idolatrous, right? Again, trying to keep the theme of we're not, we're not leaving God. Uh, so then when the suns would rise, it's for allegiance to God alone. So that's the second symbol. So we did water, we said light. Now, the third one is joy, because obviously there's not a, a ritual of joy. It's just what's associated with everything, right, that's happening, that everybody is excited. Um, this was probably the most joyful. Like we said, there's dancing through the night. There's light. There's the, the all-nighters, the sense of we worked so hard, right, up to this point that we're finally having a break. Um, it's like religious spring break, but with no sin. Um, and... I think I will leave the rituals at that. But these are what are happening, right? Because we said it culminates on the eighth day with the recitation of the law and with this light ritual, because the gospel is going to actually specify sometimes when Christ is speaking, right? Or saying this is the last day of the feast, because anybody who knows the feast would be like, oh, that day is a big deal, right? Because that's when they're going to go up and they're going to say one, two, three. Um, and so just so that there's that understanding. So... I'll just add a little bit of the cultural significance, like tiny bit, and then we're going to start um, reading it because this was the the feast that when they were when 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 the Jews were rebelling against their occupiers before the Christ even came, 
they were trying to use the rituals of this feast. That's why Hanukkah actually becomes called a second feast of tabernacles or a little feast of lights because they mimic the ritual of this feast. And the reason I bring up that as an example specifically is, is to say that there's a strong association because it's post-exile of this is about being Jewish. This is about being the kingdom. This is about being the chosen people. And when they would celebrate this, it would bring to their memories when we won the revolt against, right, the Hasidim, the, 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 the Gentiles, the Goyim, right? It would be a symbol of their purity, of their covenant. And it would also be a moment of saying, we're waiting for the son of David to come. And a lot of their hymns would be talking about the son of David because they want the king to come who will liberate them again, reestablish the temple, rid them of the occupiers. The stuff that we've been talking about is so closely associated with this specific feast, right? This has become a nationalistic day, more even than it is religiously, because to them, I shouldn't say more, because then the religious were the same, right? It's like today, the nation of Islam, the, right, to, to a, a true believer, right? It was like that for some of these Jews, um, and that's why some of the rituals in the Feast of Tabernacles, we see them doing to the Lord on Palm Sunday in a few chapters, right? Where they will also spread their garments and they will also say, uh, son of David and blessed be he who comes in the name of the world. These, these things are going to happen as well. Um, and so in the conversations that we're going to read about, it's also not surprising that they are saying things like, could this be the Messiah? Is it the son of David? Because it matches the feast that they're at, right? So all of this would have not been random because if you, we wouldn't sit here randomly like in a group and be like, hey, I wonder if that's the Antichrist. You know what I mean? Like there's gotta be a context to wondering why, the, like who is the Antichrist? So this is, this is what's going on. Um, and the key to all of this is the temple. Okay, the Gospel of John has been tying every single thing to the temple, everything, right? Um, in chapter one, people have left the temple that are obsessed with purity to go raise the challenge of purity, right? In chapter uh, two, they are arguing about purification of wine, right? Um, and sorry, purification of water and, 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 and wine. Number three, Nicodemus is... Number four, the Samaritan is asking about whether she needs to go to the temple or not. The temple is at the forefront of our minds, right? Um, and, and so on. And now the Lord wants to come and take our eyes away from buildings, human structures, human interpretations, and say, these are the things of the world of becoming. Um, and I want to enter with you guys into the world of what is, right? That same theme we've been talking about. Um, okay, so without further ado, let us start chapter seven. There are 53 verses and there are one, two, three, four. Uh, can each of you read, sorry to those online, a bunch of you are messaging that you can't hear. We were reading out loud, so that's why. Okay, so right from the beginning, we're seeing that the Lord goes out to Galilee. And it's interesting because we see that the Lord is actually avoiding Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. 
um, which is just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but it's an interesting point to look at because sometimes we think that avoiding problem is not Christian, right? Where, where we see an example in the Lord himself that actually sometimes when appropriate, he did avoid um, the confrontation uh, and possible death. So we see that the Feast of the Tabernacles, which we just spent a long time talking about, was near. And so here's the funny thing. So his, his brethren, right, his, his, his cousins, his, his relatives, um, they tell him, you should leave here and go to Judea, go to the feast, go out for the, the, the festival, so that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if you stopped there, that would sound so encouraging. Like, like, like they're just saying, wow, you're doing an amazing thing. You shouldn't keep this to yourself. If, if you're this, you should go out um, to the temple and people need to see this. And they're testifying themselves that clearly he's doing miracles and signs. If the evangelist didn't add, for even his brethren did not believe in him, I don't think we'd have any idea from that statement that that was going on, right? Which, which is, again, to the point we talked about at previous times, that miracles are not necessarily going to make anyone believe because his family who clearly is saying they do not believe in him are also saying we know you do signs but they don't know how to they don't know what they mean right like they 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 don't know how to make sense of it um i want to give an alternate version of, of the text for verse like six and seven is to say it is not yet time for me but the time is always suitable for you about him going to the feast okay the world cannot possibly hate you but it does hate me because of the evident because of the evidence I bring against it that what it does is evil. I think that flows a little bit better to understand it, and it also to me fits in really strongly with that trial motif um, from from chapter five that he's constantly on trial. But so the the, the brothers' advice to the Lord to go and display his miracle working abilities, etc., um, is interesting. I think that they want to dissociate with him a little bit, right? Shove him into the spotlight. Um, and be like, if he's real, they'll figure him out. Um, so they're one step away from him. I can't help but compare it, especially because the Lord is going to talk about the devil in this chapter. It, it does remind me a little bit of, of what the devil did with Christ in his temptation in the wilderness, right? By saying, why don't you use this power you have in a way that's actually against what it's for, right? Because I think his brethren also saw gain in it on some level, right? They were trying to manipulate something that they saw was real. Like clearly they weren't denying its, its realities. Just a thought. Um, but what's interesting is that this plays with the theme that Christ has going of what I'm talking about is not what you're talking about. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that because it's gonna seem like a contradiction when he says, I'm not gonna go. It sounds like he's saying, I'm not going. And then he goes um, and does it. But I think it's interesting to see that his own family didn't trust him, right? Relationships in those days, if you think back to that first intro lecture, are what's called dyadic, right? There's two um, members, there's two aspects of it. So family and, and the self were, were like intermingled. You can't separate the two. So if you want to know who someone was, you look at their family. So his family's denial of him is a really big deal. Think culturally to many of your parents, for those who come from Mediterranean area, right? Where the first question when you're interested in somebody is, what's his family like? 
what do they work at? Are they a good family? Right? Those are their questions. They're not like, is the person virtuous? Right? Are they, are they, do they love God? Right? Like, are they rich? Right? Do they have this? Do they have a good reputation? Those are the things that go to, and it's very much carried from, from that. So imagine if when you want to know something about someone, you go to their family and the family themselves are being like, we don't know him. Right. So he's, this reminds us again, chapter one, where he laid everything out for us with no surprises. He comes them to his own, his own receives him not. His own being the Jews, his own being even his own family, his own, we're going to see even his own disciples, right? That they're not going to be accepting of him. Um, and I also want to say how compelling it is that the evangelist writes that. Because a person who's reading him in his own time, that could make them doubt, if not for, for the evangelist's conviction, right? Because to me, this is almost like prefacing a story you're about to tell with. Like you're, you're telling some story about a doctor, and you're like, so this doctor had his license suspended by the College of Physicians, but he's got these really great remedies, right? But publicly, we're like, but if, if the regulating body banned him, like that's a non-starter, right? So if we're saying this family doesn't, doesn't respect him, his own family, he is already showing something that most people have been like, aha, right? Even his own, his own family. It shows you about the conviction and confidence of what the evangelist has about him. Um, because the real question, the real question of the gospel of St. John is not what his family thinks of him or the Pharisees think of him. It's who is he in spite of what everybody thinks. And that question is going to be brought out at least three times in just this chapter alone, right? Where they're, they're going to be constantly like, who are you, right? It's going to keep coming back. Um, and I think it's important to read the rest of the Gospel of John, this chapter, all the Gospels. I think all of real life has to be asked from the frame of meaning, right? Because his brothers saw the miracles and didn't believe because they could not understand the meaning of the miracles. If you don't have a question of meaning, you're going to be lost, which is what I think our world is right now. Like, I think we have chaos right now because we don't have objective meaning, right? So when you can frame what something means, because meaning is not something you invent, right? Meaning is given. Right, so it's invented by, right? But the, the object that has meaning has had its meaning given to it, right? So for example, I can't, I could, I could take three rocks and hand them to somebody and they mean very little. I could walk across Canada and pick a rock from every place specifically for one person. And suddenly that rock has a meaning, has a different meaning, but the meaning wasn't in the material. The material, the material is just something, right? But the question of meaning is, is important. And another light is interesting that the family doesn't trust him. Um, just for us to meditate on our own lives in 21st century. Um, I think it's not uncommon for family to view their own in the least flattering way. Right? It's not unusual that outsiders value us more than we might feel our families do. Right? Families tend to be one extreme or the other. Either they're obsessed with their own right? Or they're, or they're well-distanced, right? If you think your sibling is a jerk, for example, and then someone comes being like, wow, your brother is so nice, right? I might be like, 
are we talking about the same brother? Um, or be like, oh, you just, you don't know him yet, right? That's because you're like, we, we tend to be dismissive of the virtue um, of our own, uh, whereas others don't. And we, we should be careful of that because I think we often miss recognizing the value and gifts of our immediate family um, and end up estranging ourselves or, or them um, from something positive. Okay, so now this part that's coming up might seem like a contradiction because the Lord has said, okay, the world can't hate you. It hates me because I, I call them out as they are. You go to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. So saying here made in Galilee. But then we're going to see in verse 10 that after his brethren did go up to the feast, then he also goes up, right? Um, and so it's funny because the Lord keeps playing back and forth with them through the Gospel of John. And it must be aggravating, to be honest, to the people where he's showing them what I mean is not what you mean, right? So you, when you talk about this, I'm not talking about this, I'm talking about this. Whenever the Lord refers to his time in the Gospel of John, he's talking about the hour of glory of crucifixion. So he's saying, I'm not going to get crucified right now. Um, so he's referring to something, whereas they are referring to something else. So he, his time, his hour, the hour of passion, death, resurrection, ascension, that time um, is not yet come. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's going to be reserved for the next coming Passover, um, where the Jews will try to kill him. And actually, it becomes even more apparent because he knows it's not his time, that at this very feast in this very chapter, they will start trying to kill him and arrest him. And they are not able um, to do it. So what he's done is actually a very interesting play on words, which is the Gospel of John is full of. Um, because when he says, it is not my time yet um, to go up, the word to go up can also mean ascension. Right. So he's like, which is all of these are tied because in this chapter, he's going to also talk about Holy Spirit, like all of these. So he is saying my time of economy is 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 still in progress. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's like it's it's cool if you want to geek out on the, on, on the Greek. There's there's a lot of meaning going on there. So verse 10, after this, after his brethren went up to the feast, he went up, but not publicly, but in private. The Jews were all searching for him because he's a celebrity now. Um, and there was much muttering among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. Right now, this comment of no, but he deceives the people or he leads the people astray is not a passive phrase. This isn't just like an opinion. This is a crime. Right. Um, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 to 11, a false prophet must die because he has tried to turn you away from the Lord of your God, from the way the Lord your God commands you to follow. This is another accusation that could bring death. So this isn't just like, like, oh, no, no, he's, he's a trickster. Like, this is an allegation that, that could result in, in, in death. It's not something little. Um, and that's why the Lord actually later Jewish literature is labeled as a deceiver to justify even more. And, and they took it seriously. Like Yusufus, another, again, a Jewish historian, it's a list of people who were put to death for that very 
uh, for that very thing. So I want to pause for a second, just morally, virtuously on muttering, because I don't think we take muttering seriously. That they're mudding, muttering, <laughs> muttinger, muttering. I think I'm dyslexic. And side conversations, understandable as they are, took them no closer to the truth. Their opinions of whether he was a good guy or a deceiver or whatever view they had didn't take them any further to actually identifying who Christ was. The real question of who Christ was belonged to who are you Christ, right? But their muttering wasn't good. Now, why do we do that, right? We often will mutter when you could just go to the source of the truth, but we don't. We sometimes intentionally don't. And all we do is sit together and mumble and talk and gossip and the muttering escalates and it turns into more than muttering. And then that causes scandal or it causes anger or it causes division of friendships or families or churches, right? It always starts with speech. It always starts with speech, unnecessary speech, right? Propagated speech. And then people take that speech and they interpret what they want from that speech. And then they start assigning a value. Oh, they would know they were there, right? And suddenly that means something extra, right? So this muttering that we see ends up working up the crowd. It's not like it's like one or two or two people. It didn't settle it, it worked it up. And so I wonder how often we do this at work with family, with friends, even friendships. How, how it's worth questioning how often our friendships are based on the sharing of things that are negative. I've been in friendships where our bonding was over our complaining, right? That, that was the core of our friendship, right? It's something that can be healed and it was healed, but it was, it, it was, it makes things dark. We have to be very careful. The other thing to be careful of is do you offer insight on mutterings without the actual knowledge or expertise to do so, right? Like these people are having this conversation. What do they know, right? They're the ones who are going to end up being like, oh, wow, he's so educated. I'm like, I have to say, how do you know? Did you study? How do you, like, like but they're, they're offering their insights as though they're experts, Right. And I think we do that a lot where we'll we'll compare people or things or ideas as though we we have an, enough knowledge to do so. You've got to be careful. So somewhere in the middle of the feast, verse 14. So we're a couple of days into the feast, this week long feast. Jesus went up into the temple and taught and the Jews marvel, saying, how is it that this man has learning who never studied? And Jesus answers, well, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay, so the Jews reference is saying, you don't have rabbinic training. Why are you acting like a rabbi? Right. Who do you think you are? You can't just walk up and, and preach. Um, and so the rabbis of the Lord's day, like during that century, um, usually refer to other rabbis as their references. Right. Even even when we talk about St. Paul in scripture, like who was taught by the great Gamaliel. Right. But they, they there's even that is built into it. Um, Christ didn't. Right, which must have driven them even more nuts, right? Because Christ would go up and say things like, Oh, you've heard this. Nah, I tell you this, right? Which would get even more under their skin. Like, you're right, you say that, right? And who are you to say that it's not that? 
Um, or he'll say things like, I tell you the truth, or what we read so casually now, Amen, Amen, I tell you, verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, right? He's, he's, he's saying, this is truth, this is truth, right? I'm, I'm announcing truth, because whatever the word says is truth. Um, but at the same time, Jesus does acknowledge their concerns here, and says, well, actually, I'm not saying what's my own. I give you what the Father tells me. Right, and we're going to go right back into that conflict in just a moment. Okay, of, of who who's your father? Um, now, again, just to tie it to what we're talking about with the muttering, it seems a bit presumptuous for the people to know who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. Right, like again, it's this presumption of of knowledge. Right, I know nothing about cars. So it would be like me going to a random mechanic and be like, this is a good mechanic. You need, you need to talk to this mechanic. But if I'm going to be objective, how do I even know he's good? Because he talked well. Is it because he got a job done that I wanted? Is it because I like the cost? If I don't know anything about cars or, or being a mechanic, how did I even arrive at the assessment that he's a good mechanic? Right? Maybe he's a good speaker and not a good mechanic. Right. And that that's what I was actually drawn to. Um, I think what they're seeing here, that the reason why they're able to say the Lord is what learned is because it wouldn't have been normal for everyday Jews to know scripture that well. So I can understand socially there's something that triggered them. But just that I think we sometimes jump the gun with what jump the gun with what we think is educated. Um, and that's a disease that I think our culture has more than many generations before us. Um, where we, we, we are far too presumptuous in our assessments of knowledge. Um, seeing ourselves, I think, sometimes as, over, as more qualified than we are. And it's funny because these people who are calling him qualified right now and saying, wow, you're so smart, um, by the end of the feast, we'll be accusing him of being demonic, right? So clearly their views are, are going to change. So the Lord responds to this saying, um, if any man's will is to do his will, the father's, then they'll know whether this teaching that I give is from God or not. Um, but he who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory. But he who speaks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Basically saying, I'm not here for my own glory. I'm speaking for the glory of the father, and every word that I say is true because of who I am. I'm not showing off. It's, it's who I am, literally. Um, then he says, but didn't Moses give you the law? So you have a law, but none of you keep it. None of you are actually faithful to the law. So why do you want to kill me? Now, if you stop in the middle of this conversation, pay attention that no one has said anything about killing him. This is why this is, this is connecting to number five, right? Like he's, he's in the middle of a conversation and he just suddenly throws out there and now you want to kill me, right? Um, and that's why their response immediately is yo you're you're possessed who here wants to kill you no one said anything right who said that they want to kill you and then jesus answers them and this is the tie back to chapter five right i did one deed i did one thing and you guys went nuts right that was chapter five where he heals on the sabbath right so 
you are hounding me for that, which is showing you that the, the, the background of this feast is that they're following him around, they're angry, they're hostile, and they're shoving it in his face. So the Lord is pausing in the middle of what he's doing, being like, okay, what's your problem, right? You're mad, you're mad, you still want to kill me because I did this thing? Okay, let's, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Moses gave you a law, you don't even keep it, but forget that. You're mad, I healed on the Sabbath, you think I should die. Now, here's my question for you. Moses gave you circumcision, and he goes, which, by the way, like, this is his tone. This is, like, one of the, the most not normal Jesus tone that you associate with him is in these chapters, right? We're used to, like, huggy Jesus. Um, this is not huggy Jesus, right? Um, where he's saying, okay, not that it's even Moses's, it's actually God's. But that aside as well, right? He's, he's really letting them have it. You circumcise people on the Sabbath day. That's one of the things that you guys allow. Now, if on the Sabbath day, a person can be circumcised so that you don't break the law of Moses, right? This is your whole big deal. You're mad at me for making the whole of him well, for restoring him on the Saturday. Don't judge by what things look like. Don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Okay, that... that that verse, I think, verse 24 should be posted on every millennial and later's door, um, in, in my view. Um, their view of the Messiah, and remember, we're in the feast, that's all about Messiah, right? Um, had a matrix of passages of things that they thought the Messiah was going to look like and behave like. And you're saying, I don't look like the guy you're looking for, do I? Right. If you're judging by your appearances, by my appearances to you with your mindset, I don't look like the Messiah. Judge with right judgment in evaluating my actions and my words. So. To rephrase what's going on in another way. Jesus is saying, OK, you want to take me to court on a capital offense. What's my capital offense? And then they're saying no one's trying to kill you, blah, blah, blah. Right. But what Christ is trying to point them is saying, you are so locked in space and time. That's the world of becoming, right? It happened in space and it happened in time. And basically to them, the temple and the Sabbath, or sorry, the temple and the ritual, I'm trying to find my words, are symbols of the space-time problem, okay? Where the temple is the location, right? That's the focal point of everything, right? Everything has meaning over there. Um, and then these feasts, these, these rituals, are the events of time, right? So that basically your, your, your religious existence, which you've divorced into these little corners, occur on these two planes, right? Um, <clears throat> And Christ is saying, I'm beyond that. So if you only want to live there, you won't see me. Right? And I, and, I, and I actually think, again, at the risk of sounding heretical sometimes, this is one of the biggest dangers of traditional normal Christianity. Not that ritual's wrong, but one of our biggest dangers, one of our biggest pitfalls is that we get lost in the space-time and ritualistic like space 
where we make the actions the meaning rather than the things that point at the meaning. And then we get lost in that, right? That's why we can have 20 page online fights about whether the hymn should have been sung like this or not, or whether it be my head made up something, right? Or whether or not I should be allowed to bow this way or that. I'm not saying there's no relevance to some of those things, but what is their meaning and where does it come from? And am I locked in space and time or do I even know what it's, what it's, what it's about? And so he says, Moses gave you the law, but you know what? Moses is my witness. You're using Moses, so he's like, he's going right back to that trial we talked about in, in chapter five, right? Where he called on his witnesses, right? And they're saying, no, Moses said you can do this. He's like, no, 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 you don't use Moses for you. I'm using Moses for me, right? No, so this is the middle of the feast, but they've been following him. So he is like, let you guys just want to talk about this, this issue still? Let's talk. So this is, it says in the middle of the feast. So this is definitely not a Sabbath because the feast starts and ends on a Sabbath. So it's yeah. not like a, it's, it depends on the No, no, no. So it has a specific start and end date of dates in the month and they're treated as Sabbaths, which is its own yeah, important discussion. It could be. It doesn't seem like that's what's going on because they're all out there doing stuff, right? So it doesn't seem like it. Um, so let me skip some of this. Sorry. So he's saying you guys want to follow Moses on Sabbath, if you want to go past the literal that you see into my world, my father doesn't stop working. There is no rest for the father, right? In the world of, of is, he's always doing, he's always at, at, at work, right? And so he's saying, say, God transcends Sabbath. Right? All of these things are, are there. The Sabbath is, is, is for you, but you, because you're in the flesh, you're in the world of becoming, you need that stuff. I don't need that stuff. And I'm not subject to those, to those things. Um, I'm going to skip this part. So, verse 25. This is one of the, the three times in this chapter where they're basically debating, who are you? Is Jesus the Christ, right? Some of the people drew some, therefore said, is, isn't this the guy they want to kill? Confirming again what Christ was saying, right? That they, they really did. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from, right? Again, this is the local gossip, useless. As it, as it is, but it's also telling us something in our story, right? Where they're being like, oh, no, 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 they didn't want to kill him. That's the guy they wanted to kill. But if they wanted to kill him, then how on earth is he getting away speaking openly, right? So think about it in church terms, where it's like, let's say there's some servant that everybody thinks like is, is awful and that everyone thinks, like, no, they want to take that guy down, right? Where everyone's being talked about, they heard him like, oh, I heard they're going to kick him out. I heard they're not going to let him serve. And then the next day they find him reading the, like the gospel and giving a sermon in church. So the people are like, wait a minute, how, if, if they were going to get rid of him, how on earth would they ask him to give a sermon? 
right? So now they're they're confused. Like, okay, maybe they're not. Okay, well then that means that maybe he is the real deal. But then like, okay, but if he's the Messiah, the Messiah, they say when he comes, we're not supposed to know where he comes from, but we know where he comes from, which is so ironic because they don't, right? So what they're saying is the Messiah, no one should know his where he comes from, where his lineage is. And they don't realize that that is exactly true about Christ, right? But then they answer themselves like, oh, but we do know, which shows you how often we need to just shut up, right? And not just like let every thought out as though it's as though it's valid um so the lord proclaims you know me he says as a question you know me and you know where i come from but i have not come of my own accord he who sent me is true and him you don't know you actually don't know who sent me i know him because i come from him and he sent me where is he from he declared it from chapter one from the bosom of the father that's where I come from. That's where I dwell. That's where I always am. Even when I'm here with you, I also always remain in the bosom of the Father. They can't see him or that. They can't, when looking at him, see him. Right? And the story of the man born blind in chapter 9 is going to epitomize this. We're seeing they don't see. Right? And hearing they don't hear. They can only see with the eyes of this world, with the eyes of the world of becoming, of, of, of the things that, that, that die, with mortality, with carnality, right? That's the only way that they're able to see, right? Imagine, like, just as a weird example to get what, what's being said here, imagine, like, from those sci-fi, like, TV shows or movies where you can take someone's consciousness, right, and download it and put it into another, another body, and it carries with it its memories and feelings and attachments. Imagine if you're a parent, and you're you were put into another body and you you're with your kid but your kid sees you but doesn't see you they can't see that that's who you are right it's something like that um that they're they're looking at someone and just i'm trying to use it as an example of saying they're not able to break through because they're forced by their carnal eyes where they're not able to see beyond just physicality. That's why I'm using it as an example, right? Like, you don't look like my parent, so you must not be. And it's like, to listen, hear me, listen to what I say. If you pay attention, you'll recognize me, right? But if you get stuck at just the physical, then it won't be, it won't be me. So the Lord isn't actually yet upset that they don't see. Right? He's not saying you, you, you're horrible people for not seeing. Actually, elsewhere, he'll say, I get it. But he's pointing out that they don't see. Right? He's saying, but you actually don't. You don't know what's going on here. And what he's going to say, chapter 8, is, I am light so that you can see. Right? When you identify that I am is light, you can only see if there's light. And I am is light. Right. And he's like, I will be the source of your seeing if you if you will it. This verse so relevant. They sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because this hour had not yet come. Why is this so relevant? Because this is 100 percent our culture today. When people don't get it, they want to arrest you. If you don't think like us, let's arrest you. Let's cancel you. Let's shut you up. Let's show you that you need to be subjected to us. Let us subjugate you. This is first century Judaic cancel culture. 
bring it back to yourself. Think about any topic in which you think to yourself. Forget other people. You yourself. If someone says X, that's game over for me. Where you've made that line before even hearing what they say. If they say this, is game over. Or I won't speak to so-and-so because he will have such and such an opinion and I can't handle that. I won't speak to this person because he will tell me I ought to think or say X and I will not. I've canceled them before even speaking, right? I haven't looked for truth. I've looked for a confirmation of myself, my own stance, my own view, right? This confirmation to common sense is not always sensical. And by here, what I mean common sense is not common sense as in logical. I mean the common, the collective sense of a thing, right? That we generally think of something in a particular way. That ought to be challenged too, right? That I can't just say if it doesn't conform to the common view that it's, that it's done. You should instead ask about whether the thing you are rejecting is actually true or not not where it falls in the public sphere. Their inability to do so is why he was who he was and they still want to arrest and kill him. And he was right. And we do this all the time, right? We do it on, on so many levels. Yet many of the people believed in him. So some people have now actually believed. They won't by the end of the chapter, but or end of this uh, feast anyway. But they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Right? So you've got one group that are like, arrest him. And another group are like, no, the guy's a G. Look what he's doing. Typical extremism, right? Either he's like bleeding oil and saintly, or he's a villainous, lying, diabolical wretch. Right? We don't, we don't allow anybody in the middle of the spectrum. Um, but it's funny that what they said sounds like the Samaritan woman and the crew. When Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Now, the Pharisees are now livid, right? They're full of thee. Um, and the, the Pharisees heard the crowd thus muttering about him, more muttering. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they've sent these people saying, find a reason, arrest the guy. Know that this never even happened to John the Baptist. Like, this is an escalation. They didn't like John, but they never did that to John, right? But, but this they're doing to Christ. Jesus sees them and says, you know, I'll be with you a little bit. And then I can go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Right. He's speaking in, 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 in riddles to them. And the Jews are like, what, 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 what is he saying? Right. Is he going to the Gentiles? Right. That's the first question. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Um, what does he mean now? What we might have lost to us in contemporary culture is the question of will he go to the Greeks is insulting, right? Because the Greeks are disgusting Gentiles, right? So it'd be like, oh, is that where he's going? So in their confusion, they assumed the worst because they're tribal, right? If he's leaving the tribe, it's because he sucks. No, no, they mean the actual Gentiles. No, they mean the actual Gentiles. That's what I thought at first, but the language, it seems that they're talking about the actual Gentiles. Um, the irony is that, yes, he, he did, right? Like, like yes, he was going to go to them too, right? Both Jews of the dispersion who come from Pentecost, 
right? And and to the Gentiles. And I'm going to chapter eight to the woman caught in sin, where it's like, actually, he will go to the places that you think are stupid, but you're saying this because of your tribalism, right? What he's actually talking about is the bosom of the father, right? Like he incidentally will also do those things, but he's talking about the ascension that we just celebrated, right? But they're talking there. But I think we are tribal too. We're Democrats or liberals, Republicans or conservatives. We're pro-choicers or pro-lifers. We're anti-maskers or pro-science. And because of this, we cannot see. Right? We select our tribe. We dogmatize our tribe. We fight for our tribe. We make sure our tribe is right. And we refuse to go outside of those lines. So do you speak with sarcasm or disdain when you don't understand something or don't like something? When you don't get something, does your tone automatically change? What's that guy smoking? Right? Like an immediate, like, jesting about the other view as though he must be on some hallucinogen if he thinks not the way I think. That's what we're actually saying, disguised as joke, but that's what we're saying. That the only way a person could think that is if they're high, is what we're saying. Or that, can you believe that person said it? They must be stupid, right? Question mark, affirmation, tribe, bring, bring it in here, tell me I'm correct, affirm me. All of those betray our own ignorance. Right? What that shows is you seeing yourself as the standard of truth and judgment. And that's why he said, judge true judgment, judge good, right judgment. The only way to do that is to know what is right, which requires asking what is right, not assuming it. Most of us presume to be in the right already. And then we want everyone to conform to us. And that is a source of every single contention on the planet, period. Because if there was ever two people who were willing to hear one another out and say, let us determine the truth, they wouldn't be fighting because they wouldn't be viewing the truth as their own. They'd be trying to seek what it is. But because we fight for what we believe to be right always, we are hardly ever listening. And because you're hardly ever listening, all we end up doing is yelling louder because we're trying to force the other to listen when maybe I should start by listening, not saying I'll listen when the other listens. I'm listening and I want to find the truth in what is being said. And if that's my starting point, it's more likely to even have peace. But because we don't judge righteous judgment, we don't see, right? We still end up tribalizing because where did you get your concept of right and wrong from? Your tribe. And every tribe thinks it's right. When the real question should be, is my tribe right? And it might not be right in everything because the tribe isn't the truth. And that's where Christ stands in complete opposition when he says, everything I speak is true. Because for you, truth might be a concept. Truth is my actual identity. I don't know how to be false. I'm incapable of being false because I am light, right? Which he'll proclaim as we'll see.
we can only recognize the word, the logos, by what he says, right? Um, what he's about to get into um, is how we're going to know him, okay? So he says, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, right? So remember in the ritual we talked about at the beginning, this is the epic climax, right? In the morning, they're reciting, they brought the water, they're saying these verses, they're praising the hallows, they're saying all of these things, right? There's this big hoopla, the whole big shebang. And it says that Jesus stands up and yells. It actually says yells. He didn't just stand up quietly, like, oh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. No, he stands up in the middle of the thousands and he is yelling. Again, this is not the Jesus we're used to seeing. If anyone is thirsty, what have they just done? They come with their water libations, their water offerings that they've been taking from that one place, the pool of Siloam, here back to the altar, right? So this is in front of all of them. They're, they're seeing all this water stuff. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is not a normal thing to say in church, right? And he's saying, no, forget that water you've got over there. Come to me. Come to me if you would like to drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, which, which those who believed in him were, were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we said that there's this messianic expectation happening in this feast. Right? Isaiah said... With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, right? So the Lord is using scriptural language to say, he's talking about me. And this feast is about me because the feast is about God and I am is God, right? And so we've linked water to spirit already in previous chapters. Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, pool of Siloam, all those things. We've, we've done that, that, that link, right? Um, and the Lord is saying... If you see me and you believe me, there's things that are going to happen. That you're going to start being born from the world from above. And that that happens in time too. That it's being born of the spirit. That's why he's saying there's still an hour of glory, which in John is the cross. Right? And he goes, and then there's going to be this spirit. And he goes, because as the spirit has not, uh, sorry, um, now this is here that those who believe in him were to receive, right? Where he's talking about time. He's saying there's going to be a receiving, right? To us, we we see this as, as Pentecost. Um, but what he's also saying to them is, what he's yelling to them is, your water is not real. Right? Your water is in the world of becoming. Your water is symbolic. I am is. I am the real water. Right? I am the living water. I am that spring. I am that source. And he's declaring it publicly of saying, can you please, just continuing this whole story from the Gospel of John, stop worshiping the things that are carnal, Seek the things that are living, and I know you are also carnal. 
I really know it because I took on flesh and I'm living it with you. I'm dying it with you, actually. And the gospel of John is dying it. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Similar reaction to the people of Samaria. Has not the scripture said that Christ is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we already talked about the prophet from Deuteronomy. This is what they're asking. Like, is he that guy? Is he the prophet that they talked about? Um, is he the Messiah? Um, it's interesting because St. John's gospel never tells us where Christ is born. There's no birth narrative. So it's interesting that there's he's assuming you already know he's born in Bethlehem and seeing the irony of what they're saying, because he's, he's not said it um, himself. Um, and there was ample support that the Messiah was going to come from the house of David. And like we said, the reason why they're asking those questions right now is because this feast is tied to that, right? We're like, oh, wait, is this the guy? Could this be the year? Could the, could the Messiah be here? Is this um, going to end um, our occupation? And so they ask, is he the son of David? I just want to point out again, I know I've said it before, that they're saying son of David because son of David to them means king. That's why they like that title. And son of David will be the title that Christ will never use for himself, even though it's an accurate title for him. But he will not use it. It's not used anywhere in the New Testament about Christ. It's almost like he actively spurned the title to say, I am not here for your royal earthly kingdom. I am not about that. So even though, yes, I am the son of David, according to the flesh, I won't. You guys want the Messiah to be the center of the world? That's not what I'm going for. I'm giving you meaning to the world. I'm not ratifying your buildings. I'm not ratifying your time. I'm not ratifying your mentality. I'm using your buildings and I am using time. I'm using all of creation to fix all things, to renew all things, to resurrect all things, not to glorify death because their world was death, right? Um, and that's the end of, of, of that chapter. I think, actually, no, it's not, sorry. Um, there's this last showdown, my bad, sorry. So these officers that had come to arrest Christ, they go back to the Pharisees who sent them. And the Pharisees are upset saying, why didn't you bring him? How did you, why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, dude, like, no, did you, have you heard this guy? Right? That's their response. They, they went with the task. They couldn't do it. They came back and they're like, have you ever heard anyone talk like him? And they get angry and like, oh, are you going to be led astray also? Which we'll see next chapter. They say to the man born blind, oh, will you be his disciple too? They're angry, right? Um, have any, and then they appeal to their own authority. Have any of us, the people that matter, believed in him? Um, but these people who throng around him, they're cursed. They're, they're anathema. They're cut off. And this is where we see Nicodemus starting to switch characters, right? This is the second time we see Nicodemus. Where Nicodemus speaks justly, Nicodemus, you can almost view as like the voice of the law, the voice of the constitution, right? Um, and showing that there is a place where somebody can navigate safely from within there, right? While seeking truth, because Nicodemus is very reasonable here, right? And Nicodemus says, um, 
well, let's pay attention to the Constitution if we're going to hold somebody accountable to the Constitution. The Constitution says you don't try somebody and kill them without first having a hearing and then having a defense. And so he silences them, right, by appealing to their own standard. And then they get annoyed. And this is really funny because I only learned this today. Um, is that in their sarcasm, they make a mistake. In their sarcasm, they go, oh, what, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and you'll find that no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Factually speaking, that's not true. It says, and then they went home. <laughs> this like, <laughs> this anticlimactic, like they were shut up. The, 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 the funny part is that apparently, um, where was the list? I wrote them down. Um, Second King says Jonah's from there. Elijah's probably from there, and Nahum, the prophet, is probably from there. Um, so it's funny that even, even in their sarcasm, they're actually um, mistaken. But these last 10 minutes, like I really want to focus just a little bit on that whole just judgment thing. Like justification, because we're obsessed with social justice and justice and justice and, and all that kind of stuff right now. Um, and, and rights, but justification, judgment, are all words that refer to a straight line. That's why the world is ortho, straight, right, perpendicular, right? It's knowing what is right, and justification is supposed to be, which is what justice the word comes from, making things right, making things ortho, right? That's why orthodoxy is called that, right praise, right is saying we're just trying to do it the right way right that's that's all it is by by trying to determine what is that right i think the the disease of our time is that we've all made these assumptions about what is right no one wants to talk about that assumption right and then we're all yelling and screaming on the side about what's supposed to be there so the lack of just judgment resulted in the death of Christ, right? And I've seen, like, I think that this mo trial motif is so relevant because I actually personally feel like everyone in society right now is always actually on trial, like for everything that they say and do, right? Where it's, there's an immediate accuser and a prosecution and a judgment, only there's rarely defense anymore there's only popular defenses. Like, let's choose a, a cause that we can pet for a little bit before we move on, like, to the next one, right? But if you're going to speak in the language of justice, how do you speak the language of justice without knowing? And if you don't, and if you think you know, then question what you know. Like, what is the source of your knowledge? Yourself? Reddit? Twitter, Facebook, Insta? Is that the source of your knowledge? Is it a Google search? Is it your extremely limited life experience? Like the arrogance of our generation, myself included, like it's, it's, it's disturbing, right? And the end result is that we hold people on trial. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna go like to the extreme. Look at how, what's his face, Obama, whatever, say his name right, um, and, and the FBI or say whatever, 
came out like a few weeks ago saying affirming um, the appearance allegedly of UFOs. I have no idea, true, false, I don't even care, okay? But my point is that here's a former president of the US of A with one of the highest, highest respected agencies in the world leading country who make a statement like that, where if you said that you believe in UFOs a day before, you're branded a psychotic, crazy, weird, out there, flat earthist, and all of the labels that come with that. Again, I'm not taking a position. That's not my point. But my point is that was your source, what was your source of knowledge about UFOs to begin with? Just I'm using an absurd example because it's less personal to people here. Right? But how do you know if there's a UFO or not a UFO? What is a UFO? What is the noun? Define it. What does it refer to? Does believing in a UFO mean it must be an alien species? I don't, and I don't know, and I don't care. But my point is that when you make up knowledge or see yourself as a source of knowledge or crowdsource your knowledge, the common sense, exactly as these people were doing, you crucify truth. And when you constantly crucify truth, it means you have no standard. And when there is no standard, all we do is fight and kill more and more, wanting our own quote unquote version of truth, my truth to prevail. Whereas the humility of being a created being is in the starting the question of what am I, who am I, what is? That's why Christ is constantly shining this mirror back and saying, let me tell you what it is not what it has become. What it's become is you, what you have morphed it into, right? But I want to tell you what it is, what actually is. So pay attention in your own fights, pay attention in your own discords to your language. How often are you speaking assertively when you have no right to speak assertively? How often are you saying everyone knows or everyone thinks or it's just common sense? How often are you going into a fight saying until this person arrives at this conclusion, there's no discussion? In all of these cases, you think you are objective truth. You are not justifying, you are not just. You are not giving good, true, right judgment. You are making yourself God. Because the one who himself had the authority to do so said, I'm not even here to judge you. That's what we read last time. My words will judge you. My existence, whether I'm true or not, will be his own judgment. I don't even need to actively just tell you whatever. Because reality stands for itself. Right? You can fight gravity all you want. But if it is, it is. Nothing you can do about it. Right? Your judgment is in front of you because you're not floating. Right? It's already there. So that's the part that I think all of us should maybe take an exercise to do, right? To spend some time in reflection, like maybe even to do an inventory throughout the week of all of your conflicts, whether an actual verbalized conflict, right? Or an internal one, and say, what is it that I am so attached to that makes me feel entitled? to whatever it is that I'm fighting for? And how can I let that go? And more importantly, what is the truth? And how do I find it out?
because then you'll find yourself peace, peaceful with everybody, even if they disagree with you. Even if you don't agree with their assessment, because you'll allow the possibility of its truth if it's not in the realm of absolute. Maybe they really didn't mean it. I can believe that. What do I need from them? To declare they meant it? What if they didn't? Doesn't matter how I saw it. But the sooner we conform to the truth, the sooner we'll be just, and the sooner we'll be liberated. To him be glory, now and always, age of all ages. Amen. Um, any questions, comments, criticisms, uh, meditations? Word. Okay. And that's good because my charge is about to turn off. And um, Okay, next time we will do chapter eight. Yeah, next time will be only chapter eight. Also, if anyone has any questions, because eight won't be too long. I don't want to jump into nine because the man born blind is like its own standalone story within it. So I don't want to combine eight and nine. I think it would be awkward. Um, maybe nine and 10. So I might, so next time might be shorter. I'm not sure, especially if we, if depending on if we spend time on the, the woman caught in sin or not. Um, so it might not be a bad time also to do any review about any concepts, like if there's any questions about it, um, if you can send them in advance would be good.